This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bible, turn to the book of James, if you would, this evening, James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we're going to start in uh, verse number, let's see, verse number 14, I think, tonight. Yeah, let's do that. James chapter uh, 2, verse number 14. We're continuing our series entitled Practical Christianity, just to give you a, kind of a backstory on the book of James. The book of James was probably one of the very first books ever written uh, in the New Testament, chronologically speaking, uh, in the fact that James was writing to a group of um, new Christians who had split from Jerusalem, uh, from the, the first church that got started there in Jerusalem. They'd scattered abroad. He writes to these uh, Jewish believers, basically telling them, hey guys, I know you don't know a lot about Christianity yet, but let me tell you how we do things. And so James kind of gives a really kind of practical day-to-day uh, operations on how Christians should live. And, and for that reason, it's super practical to you and I, super, super helpful. James would have been probably one of the last books added to the canon of Scripture, the, uh, the whole totality of the Bible. Last one added in there because it didn't contain a lot of doctrine, uh, didn't contain a lot of stories or narrative. It's just a lot of really good practical information. So, uh, but a great, great book. If you missed any of the message so far, get caught up through the Hui Kala app or through the Hui Kala podcast. Also, good reminder for you, on the Hui Kala app now, you can download the notes for Sunday evening messages. And so uh, that's a huge blessing. And so for those of you that use that, uh, that's helpful to you as well. Some people have asked uh, before, why wasn't, didn't that happen before? Because basically, uh, up until about six months ago, I was in charge of everything. And so if you just didn't get uploaded, it didn't get uploaded. Sometimes people be on Sunday morning like, hey, th- there's no notes. Yeah, I know, I didn't get to it this week, sorry. Uh, but I'm so thankful and, and grateful uh, that God brought uh, Trey Williams to serve alongside of me. And uh, he takes care of a majority of all of our media stuff now. It's such a huge weight lifted off of me. And uh, man, the, the Williams family this past week made six months here at Hui Collins. So, uh, the, yeah, woo, yes. Man. Totally awesome. Uh, moved out here 100% by faith, trusting God to do something great in their lives. Uh, and he's used them in such a phenomenal way uh, in just the past six months. I'm looking forward. I told Trey uh, the uh, other day, I said, hey, six months down and about another uh, 60 years to go. That's, what, that's our plan. And so, uh, but man, uh, so thankful to have them with us. James chapter 2 tonight, I've entitled tonight's message, Faith versus Works. Uh, we got one more week in this uh, passage of Scripture just because it's so good. It's uh, so important for you and I to understand the relationship between faith and works uh, and how that works in with salvation. Uh, next week, we're going to take a look, a little bit more of an even further deep dive uh, into this particular passage because it's so good. This is one of those passages that if it gets misapplied or misunderstood, it ruins everything. The gospel message is so important for you and I to understand, first of all, so that we can be saved, but secondly, so that we can lead other people to Christ as well, that we can't afford to get a passage like this wrong. And so we're going to be taking a look at several different verses uh, throughout the Bible t- tonight. I'm going to ask you to keep your Bible handy. Uh, even if you use your Bible on a mobile device, keep your, your app open. Uh, maybe you can highlight some verses as we go through these uh, because it's going to help you to be able to share your faith better uh, with another person. And so uh, we find ourselves James chapter 2, uh, verse number 14 tonight. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? 
If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Now, James asks a question in uh, verse number 14. It's a rhetorical question with no answer, which leads some to uh, basically come to a wrong conclusion of what he's asking. Can faith alone save a man? And the answer to that is yes. And we'll take a look at why that is in just a moment uh, with that. But sometimes people confuse this passage and think to themselves, James is saying that you can't be saved by faith alone. You need to be saved by faith and works together. That's what makes saving faith. And so the, it's important that we understand exactly what the Bible says. I'm going to break this down for you really clearly tonight uh, before we get started. This is kind of the introduction to the message. And if you hear nothing else tonight, hear this because it's the most important news you'll ever hear in your entire life. Every single person born into this world is born an enemy of God at odds with God. We're not automatically born into the family of God. We're born as the enemies of God. If you want to talk about who your father is, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you have your father the devil. Uh, the Bible tells us we're the children of disobedience, uh, we're the children of wrath, and Romans chapter 5 tells us that we are the enemies of God. That's who you and I are when we're born into this world. Uh, the Bible tells us that we were born into this world as sinners, uh, that we come forth from our mother's womb speaking lies, the Bible says. Uh, David even goes so far as to say, in sin did my mother conceive me. Didn't mean that the act of her conceiving was sinful, but the moment that he became a person, sin nature was already in him. Uh, the Bible tells us again in Romans chapter 5 that sin entered into the world by one man, Adam, and because of that, death has passed upon all men, for all men have sinned. So important from the jump that we understand we are all sinners, we have all broken God's law. Uh, again, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans, there's none righteous, no, not one. It's also important to understand the consequences for sin. Sin has a price that must be paid for. Because We've transgressed God's law. There must be consequences. The consequences is that we'll physically die one day, and then it's appointed unto man once to die. After that, the judgment. Everyone will stand before God, and God will judge us according to our lives because of our sin. Now, that judgment will not be a, a scale where he weighs our good versus our bad or the good things we've done versus the bad things we've done. We'll stand before God if we're standing on our own, and God will say, you've broken the law Here's the consequences, and the consequences of that is death in hell. If you're taking notes, Revelation chapter 20 talks about that. Those whose names were not found written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. This is the second death. So all of us have sinned. We all deserve to go to hell. But God loves you and I so much that he would be willing to give of his greatest uh, thing that he has, his only begotten son. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, die that second death, but have everlasting life. And again, if you want to take a look at faith versus works, John 3, 16, really clear. Whosoever believe on Jesus Christ shall have everlasting life. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse number 8, but God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died in my place. We sometimes refer to this as the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That a payment was made on my behalf where someone died in my place, and that was Jesus Christ. But, 
everyone, everyone must receive the gift of forgiveness, receive the gift of salvation. You have to make a decision for yourself. Your parents can't make that decision for you. Uh, Your church can't make that decision for you. You have to put your faith in Christ as Savior and be saved. The word saved could also be used synonymously in the Bible with the, the phrase born again. Just like you were born physically into this world, on a certain time, date, and place, you must be born again at a certain time, date, place. Now, the date that you remember, not necessarily important. Maybe even the place, not necessarily important, but you recognize there was a time in your life where you realized your need for Jesus as Savior. You confessed your sin before him, and you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. That means he's the master, the boss, and calls the shots from here on out. And you put your faith in Jesus and were saved. Jesus is the only way that you can be saved. No church is necessary to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. There's no works or rituals that you and I can do, whether it be baptism or or whether receiving communion or anything like that, that could ever wash away our sins or ever forgive our sins. Salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. Now, that is what we refer to as the gospel. Jesus Christ died in place of sinners. And all who come to him through faith and repentance can be saved. And Jesus goes so far in John chapter 3, verse number 3, and says, No man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You need to be saved to go to heaven. No two ways about that. Now, we get to the book of James, where James says, Hey, your faith, is that enough to save you? What about works? What relationship does good works and the good things that we do, what relationship does that have with faith? And so many times people who are trusting in their own goodness, uh, trusting in their own works to get themselves to heaven, you ask them the question, if you died today, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? Most of them would say, I hope so. I think so. I'm pretty sure. Because if we trust in our work, we'll never truly be sure that we're saved. If I'm trusting in my own work, I can never really know if I've done enough. You talk with a person who's trusting in their own works, Hey, if you died today, do you think you'd go to heaven? Well, I'm pretty sure that I would. Well, I hope that I'm going to heaven. Well, I think I'll probably make it by the time my time is up. And again, uh, in other religions outside of Christianity, when someone dies, they'll pray that God will receive their soul, that God will uh, expunge their sin debt and offer them the ability to go to heaven after they've already passed on. Again, that's not a biblical idea whatsoever because the Bible says that once you take your last breath on planet Earth, your eternal destination is already determined. There's nothing anybody can ever do to change that. But the thing is, is if you're trusting in how good you are, the question is how good is good enough? If if I'm trusting in me being a good person, then the question even becomes who determines what is good? Because good is kind of a subjective term. So if we're analyzing our own life against a sliding scale, the question is, when have we done enough? And the answer is, you'll never know until your time comes. And that's a terrible, terrible way to live, isn't it? Thinking that maybe, hopefully I've done enough, maybe God will be merciful, maybe God will be gracious, maybe I won't go to hell, maybe I've done enough. And again, if that's your idea, as your loved ones sit on your deathbed, by your your bed, hoping that you've done enough. They say, maybe we'll see you on the other side, maybe we won't. 
because nobody can really know if they've done enough. And let me tell you this, if you're trusting in your good works to get you to heaven, you will never be able to do enough. You'll never make it, I promise you. You could be one of the best people to ever walk the planet and you won't make it because again, we see in James chapter two here, if he manifested one point of the law, he's guilty of all of it. But you see, if we trust in the work of Jesus, we will never truly doubt that we're saved. If I'm trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for me, I know that I could never pay my sin debt. I know that I could never do anything to earn God's favor. I know I couldn't, even on my best day, if I was just given 24 hours, I couldn't be good enough to go to heaven, much less over the course of my entire life. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, and I throw myself upon the grace of God to receive forgiveness. And I know my sins are forgiven not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. 100%. No doubt about it. And if you're trusting in the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to cover your sins, you have no reason to doubt whether or not you're saved at all. So again, there's an assurance found in knowing Jesus Christ. We sang that song last week, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. I have the assurance of salvation because I know the debt has already been paid by Christ himself. That's why John, when he writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse number 13, these things, just turn over there if you would, 1 John 5, 13. I was going to quote it, but I want you to see it in your Bible. And again, if you're taking uh, notes and you want to share your faith better, 1 John 5, 13. And again, if you want to get better at sharing your faith, you want to get better at, at telling people about Jesus, I'm going to give you some verses tonight that you should uh, make note of. Maybe you should write them in your notes. Maybe you should circle them in your Bible. 1 John 5.13 is one of those verses you should circle, star, underline. If you're using a mobile app on your mobile device, highlight this verse. 1 John 5.13. These things have I written unto you. Unto who? To you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So here's what God wants you and I to have. He wants us to have 100% assurance that we're saved. No doubt, no question. Because he knows that peace comes from knowing that God is in charge, God is in control, and everything will work according to God's plan. Peace comes from that. Anxiety comes from the idea of, I hope I was good enough this week. I gotta get to church because I gotta make sure that I, I keep myself in good favor with God so that when my time comes, everything's okay between me and God. That produces anxiety because I don't know if I've done enough or not. But peace comes from knowing that my sin is forgiven based on the merit of Christ, not my own merit of my own works. And so these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. If you've accepted Christ as Savior and you've confessed him as Lord, you are one that believes on the name of the Son of God. So what does he want you to know? 1 John 5, 13. That ye have, may know that you have everlasting life, even to who? To them that believe on the name of the Son of God. So here we have a promise. And so sometimes when people say, well, there's no way anybody could really know 100% sure they're going to heaven. I say, would you like to see what God has to say about that? 1 John 5, 13 says that you can know. And sometimes I'll even, before I even go through the gospel, somebody will say, hey, would you like to know how you could know 100% sure that you're going to heaven? Well, nobody could really know 100% sure. Hey, let's see what God has to say about that. 1 John 5, 13 says you can know 
that you have eternal life. How do you know that? All you have to do is believe on the name of the Son of God. And that's Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about Jesus. So again, God wants us to know for sure that we are saved. Now, important thing to understand, we took a look at this last week when we took a look at other false religions, but we have to understand that we are not saved by our works. So can a faith alone save a man? James would say absolutely no doubt about it, no question at all. Well, why did James make it ambiguous? We'll take a look at that a little bit later. But we took a look at this last week, that the moment that you add works to your faith, it's no longer the grace of God. Again, the book of Romans uh, chapter 8 tells us that it's either grace or it's works. The two of these are incompatible with each other. Either it's your unmerited favor or it's something you've done to, to deserve it, but you can't do both. And so if I say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, I confess my sin before God, I repent of my sin, I turn away from my sin and turn to Christ, I confess that he is the Lord of my life and he is the authority for me from here on out and I choose to follow Jesus, but I know that's not enough to get me to heaven, so then I'm going to get baptized, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to do a lot of really good stuff. Now I've invalidated the grace of God. Now it's no longer grace. And let me just tell you this, if it's no longer grace, you're no longer saved. Because that's a pretty heavy statement. I got it. It's heavy. That's why this, this passage of Scripture and the study of salvation, and again, if you want to go down the rabbit hole, this is called soteriology, which is the study of salvation. If you really want to, to, to mess things up, begin to mess around with the gospel. And so you and I need to understand critically clear that once we add works to salvation, it's no longer salvation. Anytime. Whether it's church attendance, communion, baptism, you know, giving money to the church, things like that. Once you add your works to salvation, it's no longer salvation. I grew up in uh, western Kentucky, and, and basically there's two major uh, branches of Christianity. I'll use that in air quotes there. One is uh, Baptist, you know, just about everybody you know in the South is going to be a Baptist, and uh, again, Southern Baptists are very prevalent uh, where I come from in Kentucky. The other large church in our town of about 4,000 people was the Churches of Christ. And if you're not familiar with the Churches of Christ, it's different than the United Church of Christ or UCC, which a lot of the Congregationalist churches here in Honolulu are part of the UCC. It's separate from that, uh, and basically it's a, it's a works-based salvation, so because of that it wouldn't be true biblical Christianity. And so the churches of Christ basically believe that baptism washes your sins away. So let's just say, for example, uh, last night, Saturday night, you got some friends over, you're talking about Jesus, and you ask them if they'd like to be saved, and they say that they would. Typically, they would call the pastor at 10.30 at night on a Saturday night and say, hey, Joe wants to get saved. And the pastor would say, okay, I'll meet you at the church, and we'll warm the baptistry up, and we'll baptize Joe so he can be saved. And the idea is that if Joe dies before tomorrow, before Sunday services, and doesn't get baptized, he's going to go to hell because baptism saves. Now, again, that's a false doctrine, sometimes referred to as baptismal regeneration. If you ever hear that term, that's what that means, that the actual regeneration work takes place not when you receive Christ as Savior, not when the Holy Spirit enters your life, not when God makes you a new creature, but the regeneration work takes place in baptistry waters. Could not be further from the truth. And so because of that, 
churches of people who ascribe to churches of Christ doctrine and theology that baptism is necessary for salvation are not saved. Well, they believe in Jesus, the same Jesus we do. Got it. They believe that Christ's work on the cross is necessary to pay for sin. Got it. They also believe that you must do something, a work, in order to be saved. And because of that, it negates the grace of God and those people are not saved. And so it's absolutely terrible because these are some of the most devoted people in the world that, that you've ever met that, who uh, follow after their faith. But also they believe in not only baptism or regeneration, but they also believe that you can lose your salvation. That when you sin, you've lost your salvation, you need to be saved a second time. And if you depart from uh, the church, whether it be for two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, you need to be saved when you come back and confess your sin before the church to be saved a second time. Now again, please understand, if you have to continually work for your salvation, you have to continually be obedient for your salvation, you have to wonder whether you've lost it or whether you haven't, that doesn't bring the peace of God in your life. That brings, again, the continual idea, have I done enough? Verses that are going to be super important to us. Uh, you're, you're already close to it, so turn over to uh, Titus chapter 3, if you would. And again, I'm sharing these verses with you because I want you to highlight them in your Bible. Titus chapter 3. I love, I just love the Bible. Uh, Titus chapter 3, I was, gonna, I was trying to figure out where I wanted to start. Uh, we'll start in um, verse number 1. Titus chapter 3, verse number 1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, and to be ready to, to every good work. Now, Paul is writing to Titus. Titus is a pastor. And he's giving Titus instructions on how to lead people as a pastor. And to say, hey, teach everybody to obey authority and to be ready to do good works. To speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing meekness unto all men. This is for us as Christians. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Verse number three I love because Paul tells Titus, hey, remind everybody on a regular basis where they came from. Lest they think that they're better than everybody else, lest they think that they're not like those other people, remind them where they came from. And we, Titus, as pastors, need to remember where we came from because those same people that were trying to win to Christ, that used to be us one day. Verse number four, but after the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, toward man appeared. Verse five, circle it, star it, underline it, highlight it. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by what are we saved? According to this verse right here. What does it say? Somebody help me. Mercy. Mercy is God withholding us from us the punishment that we're actually due. So again, we're not saved because we're really good. We're saved because God is merciful. He's withholding his wrath and judgment from us and chooses instead to give us his grace. And then we're saved by the renewal that takes place, the regeneration 
that's given to us by the Holy Spirit. So the, day, the moment that you get saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life, begins to regenerate your heart and mind to be like Jesus Christ. And now you're saved not because you've been a good person, not by works of righteousness which you have done, but by the grace of God which saves you. Turn back to uh, Galatians chapter 2 if you would. Galatians chapter 2, verse number 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now we need to understand what that word justified means because it's a good Bible word. And depending on your English translation, you might have gotten a, another word other than ju justified there. Uh, and if you, you did, let me just tell you, you got robbed because justified is a really good word. The word justified like we use in our modern vernacular vocabulary is like, uh, it, it's, uh, it makes it okay what we did. Man, I, I was justified by speeding because I was in a hurry or I was uh, justified by uh, saying something uh, because I was uh, frustrated. That's not what the word justified means in the Bible. The word justified is actually a legal term by which one is declared righteous. And so you and I are declared righteous in the sight of God. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sinful condition. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Justification also takes it one step further, more than just being declared righteous. It means that my sinfulness was placed on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's righteousness was placed on me. Jesus was punished. I was declared righteous. That's what justified means. Oh, such a beautiful Bible word. Sometimes we refer to that as the beautiful exchange. My sin upon Christ and his righteousness upon me. He was punished and I walked away scot-free. What a deal. That's justification. And sometimes you might have heard pastors say, justification means just as if I'd never sinned. Maybe, probably so, but that's such a short-changing definition. Justification means I was declared righteous because my sin was placed upon another and the righteousness of Christ was placed upon me. That's what it means to be justified. So let's take a look at, uh, at Galatians 2.16 based on our understanding now of that term justification. Knowing this, that a man is not justified or declared righteous by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You couldn't be saved by keeping God's rules if you wanted to. It does not work that way. No one will be declared righteous because they were a good person. Nobody. The only way that you can be declared righteous is by faith in Jesus Christ and faith alone. Turn if you would over to, so again, highlight Galatians 2.16. That's really important. Turn over to the right in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2.
Galatians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Again, two power pack verses. We don't even have time to even scratch the surface on these two. But let, let's see this tonight. First of all, by grace are you saved unmerited, undeserved favor. You didn't get saved because there was something lovely in you that attracted God to you. You were not saved because you did something good for God and he chose to reward you. You're saved by grace alone. It's interesting that we're saved by grace, but the other passage that we saw says that we're saved by mercy. Mercy and grace are two different sides of the same coin. Mercy is God withholding from me the things that I actually deserve, wrath and punishment, and God giving me the things that I don't deserve, salvation, sonship, blessings, his presence, his spirit. So God is merciful, holding back our punishment, but he's also gracious, giving us what we need, and we're saved by grace, according to this, through faith. Next phrase here, super important, not of yourselves. I bring nothing to the table of my own salvation other than my sinful condition. I have nothing to offer God except my faith and repentance. Because the moment that I get baptized to be saved, it now has become a work that I offer God as a way to be saved. Once I decide that I need to start attending church on a regular basis so that I can be saved, it now becomes a work that I offer God that God would have to be obligated to reward me for. And God says you're not saved by merit, by being rewarded. You're saved by grace through faith. Not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. When you give gifts to anyone, you don't expect anything in return. You give a gift because you're generous, because you're kind. If you give a gift because you're hoping to expect to receive a gift, then it's not really a gift. It's more of an exchange. It's a transaction. If you give someone a gift, but then you ask for payment in return, it's no longer a gift. It's a financial transaction. But salvation from God is a gift that we can do nothing except receive gratefully. Verse number nine, not of works. Again, it's marking out the idea that salvation would somehow come through works because then we can actually boast about it. In the history of who we call a Baptist church, we turned eight years old last month, I have missed five Sunday services in the history of our church. Five. One of them I had COVID, so that doesn't really count. I was forced to stay home. I didn't want to, right? So let's, we'll just count that, though. Five. Is there anybody in this room that has had perfect attendance on Sunday mornings with the exception of five or less services? Yeah, I didn't think. Okay, fine. In eight years. No. No, you, 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 no, you missed like the first seven years. So, doesn't count. In the history of our church, eight years, has anybody missed less than four services? No, you haven't. I have, be I have better attendance than everybody in this room. So, if we're comparing our works, I got you beat when it comes to church attendance. No doubt about it. Easy. Hands down. Nobody even close. But if we're not looking based on our own merit, and all we bring to the table is our sinful condition, I could probably say I could be one of the worst sinners in the room here. And I need God's grace as much as you need God's grace. And we can't compare how good we are. We can, can compare our need for a Savior, though. Because if it's by works, then we begin to one-up one another. 
if it's by works that we can be saved, then we begin to, uh, to compare with one another how good we are. But when it comes to being saved by grace, all of us have to say we are without hope without Christ. And we all need Jesus because we cannot save ourselves. So that's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says. Again, if it were what we can do, I got a reason to brag, but I got no reason to brag on myself tonight. I'm only going to brag on Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in Christ alone. I'm going to brag on Jesus and how good he is. Now, we're saved by the grace of God by faith. We're not saved by our works. We see that we're saved by the grace of God by faith. Turn it over to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you're trying to share your faith with somebody and they wonder what they should read in the Bible, point them to the book of John. It speaks about the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Point them to the book of Romans. It points them to the fact of who they are and why Jesus came. The book of John and the book of Romans explains the gospel better than any two singular books in all of the Bible. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 tells us how one can be saved. Is it through faithful church attendance? Is it through giving money? Is it by being a good person? Things along those lines. Here's what Romans chapter 10, verse number 9 says. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Pet peeve, personal opinion here. I'll, I'll, I'll set that with a caveat. I hate the idea of a sinner's prayer. Hate it. You don't find it in the Bible anywhere. Now, what you do find in Romans 10, 9, and 10 is a belief in your heart and a confession with your mouth. And that can take any form whatsoever. But repeating a rote prayer that somebody wrote in the back of a Bible or on the back of a gospel track and things like that, that leads people to the idea that there's certain words that we have to say to be saved or that this is more, nothing more than an incantation or a, a recited prayer that one must say to go to heaven. Friend, you can say as all the words in the world that you want to, but if it doesn't come from a heart of faith and repentance, it's just words. So again, when people say things like, oh, we had you know, 25 people pray the sinner's prayer, that means nothing to me personally. Did you have 25 people who trusted Christ as Savior, who made Jesus Christ the Lord of their life and confessed his lordship? Do you have 25 people who truly repented or turned from their sin and turned to Christ and were regenerated by the Spirit of God? Or do you have 25 people that repeated after you? Big difference. We'll take a look at that more in depth next week on next Sunday night. But here's the idea. It's not complicated to be saved. And sometimes I think uh, churches make it, uh, they either go to one extreme or the other. There's a, what's sometimes referred to as easy believism. One, two, three, repeat after me and you can be saved. That's not really salvation. And then there's the other side that's like ultra complicated. Like you got to read the, uh, the Bible and you got to understand Greek and Hebrew and you got to understand these deep uh, theological terms. And you got to be able to, you know, express it and show it and live it out and all these other things. That makes it overly complicated. Romans 10, 9, and 10 boils it down to the nuts and bolts. You need to believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again as payment for your sins. And you must confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. That, again, that word Lord means master. Confessing his authority in your life. Not that I believe that there's a Jesus. 
I, I, I kind of believe that there's God. We'll see a little bit later in, in James. The devils believe and tremble. But being able to say, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I believe that I cannot make it to heaven without him. I'm trusting in him and him alone to save me. And I'm turning from my sin and turning to Christ as my Savior. That is Romans 10, 9 and 10. Belief in your heart, confession with your mouth. And sometimes uh, I'll have people, hey, if you'd like to pray a prayer to ask God to save you, do that now. And sometimes people need some help, and I get that. And I'll, I'll help them along if they need help, for sure. And I'll, but I always preface that with, hey, it's not the words that you say that you're repeating after me. It's about what's taking place in your heart and getting that out audibly before God. But here's the idea behind this, is that sometimes I ask people, hey, do you believe that Jesus Christ do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he's the son of God? Do you believe that he died on the cross to pay for your sins? Do you believe that without Jesus Christ, you will go to hell? Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Do you believe that he died and rose again the third day as payment for your sins? Are you willing today to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ? And if every one of these questions they say yes to, that's a belief in their heart and a confession with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and according to Romans 10, 9 and 10, they're saved. They didn't have to come to the front. They didn't have to kneel. They didn't have to, to do a, a repeat-after-me type prayer. A belief in heart, confession with mouth. By faith alone. So again, how does one get saved? Faith and repentance. And the moment you begin to mix works into this, it's no longer true biblical salvation. Now, what does that have to do with our faith? Turn back to James uh, chapter 2. Ah. Again, let's take a look at uh, what James says. What does it profit, my brethren? Verse number 14. Though a man say he hath faith and hath not works, can faith save him? His brother and sister be naked and destitute of daily food. And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, notwithstanding your give them not the things which are needful for the body. What doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. So we're not saved by our works, we're saved by the grace of God, but our works allow our faith to live itself out in real, tangible ways. If our faith is real, you'll be able to see it. If my faith is real, people will be able to notice. I was talking with some folks this past week, and they were talking about, you know, uh, having alcohol in their home and people that would come over to their house for barbecues that might bring alcohol and things like that. And here's what they said. Pastor, we talked with our neighbors, and our neighbors said to us, I know where you guys go every Sunday morning. And, she, and then she said, because of that, I don't want alcohol in our house because I don't want anybody to see alcohol because they know where we go on Sunday mornings. I love that. I love it. You know why? Because they were saying, my neighbors know that we're Christians. Now, their faith brought out tangible works in their life. Hopefully you can point to areas of your life and show evidence of the that you're a true follower of Christ because of the way that you live. Without works, our faith is simply a mental perspective that changes nothing. That's what James is saying here. Hey, if you say that you have faith, but it doesn't change anything in your life, your faith is dead. Because real faith is active faith. It actually does stuff. 
good flows from your life because you have a real, active, tangible, visible faith. Paul even says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as he talks about love. Sometimes people talk about 1 Corinthians 13 as the love chapter. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 3, if I gave everything that I have to feed and clothe the poor, but I don't have love, I am nothing. So he even goes so far as to say the love that I have towards other people is not an emotional feeling or emotional perspective. It is real, tangible action. And so for you, I would ask you, if your faith is real, if you're really a Christian, how could you prove it? Well, I go to church on Sunday. <laughs> there are so many people that go to church that have no idea. They wouldn't know salvation if it hit them in the side of the head. They couldn't find the book of Romans if you gave them, if you put the Bible alphabetically, they couldn't find it. So attending church does not necessarily make one a Christian, for sure. So what tangible ways can you point to in your life that prove your Christianity. Now, it's important to understand, we don't have to prove anything to God. God already knows. We don't have to work to be saved. We've already covered that in great length. But what evidence is there that you really are a Christian? Because James goes on to say here, hey, if you call yourself a Christian and say you have faith, but it doesn't change your life, your faith is dead. So there should be obvious evidence of our faith our faith is to be a world-changing faith. Again, if we just say a prayer, one, two, three, repeat after me and go home, and nothing changes, first of all, I question whether or not someone was truly saved. But secondly, if there's no change in your life, your faith isn't really worth a whole lot to begin with. And again, we'll take a look at this further in depth next week at some of the evidences of salvation that come out as a result of the, our faith. But the whole idea behind Christianity was, was that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins. And that truth, that would change the world. We make a big deal around here about Christmas and Easter. Christmas, God became man and dwelt among us, John chapter 1. Why did he do that? Because he was looking forward towards the cross. Also, John chapter 1, to them gave he power to be the sons and, and implied they're the daughters of God, to them that believed on his name, that, that Jesus Christ came so that he could create a family of God so that you and I could be sons and daughters and receive sonship from a heavenly father. Man, what a gift. How did that take place? The cross. So we celebrate Christmas because God became man and dwelt among us. And we celebrate uh, Easter because God died upon the cross to pay for our sins and resurrected of his own power the third day, conquering sin, death, and the grave forever. Amen. Big deal for us. And so that, those two events changed the course of world history forever. Forever. The world will never be the same because of those two events. So you and I, if we really believe what we say we believe, then our faith should change the world that we live in. That's the idea behind it. First of all, my faith must change me. The great theologian Michael Jackson once said, I'm looking at the man in the mirror and I'm asking him to change his ways. 
For those of you that don't know, Michael Jackson is not a true theologian. <laughs> but, but again, here's the thing. The unsaved world knows. If you want to change something, change yourself first. Unsaved people know that. How much more should Christians latch on to that idea that if I want to see my world change, I need to start changing me first? Would we like to see revival in America? Absolutely. Amen. Would we like to see our island wholly given over to Christ? Amen. Yes, we would. Would you like to see revival in your family? Amen. I would. Great. Get to work on it. Oh, well, that's a lot of work. I don't know if that would ever really happen. Yeah, I know. Again, we like the big idea of, you know, God bringing America back to Christ. And you know what sickens me about Christians? And I'll just say this. I ain't mad about it. I'm just frustrated. You know what sickens me is that Christians oftentimes think to themselves, if we elect the right person into office, revival will come to America. Really? Oh, that it were so easy to walk behind a curtain and fill out a bubble and then revival just magically appears in America. How about we get on our face before God and confess our sin? How about we repent? How about we beg God for his spirit to be poured out, not on America and Hollywood, but his spirit poured out upon us and our families and our homes and our church and our block and our community? How about we start there? Because, again, you, you get the little sticker that you wear that says, I voted, and you think that brings revival to America. You have greatly misjudged what true biblical revival looks like when it comes to God's people. But we as Christians should first seek to allow God's word to change us before we seek to be a change agent in the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. But here's the thing. Here's the awesome part about it. And if you've ever been around a Christian who is like white hot on fire, they're fun to be around. They're a blast because here's the thing. They're, they haven't been jaded by a bunch of people who have hurt them over the years. They haven't been frustrated because their prayers didn't get answered. They didn't, haven't fallen off the wagon because they wa like watching Netflix too much. They just really just believe that God can. And that's a lot of fun to be around. And I want to be that kind of Christian for sure. But you know what? My faith should change the world around me. My faith should change the people that I work with. My faith should change my neighbors. There's a guy who came to uh, church this morning and I asked him how he found out about our church. He told me, he's like, oh, there's a couple guys I work with that go to church here. And he said, hey, it's one of my, my coworkers. He named his name. He said, is he here? And I said, I haven't seen him yet. But I said, if he doesn't show up today, he's either dead or in the hospital and we should go looking for him. And he laughed, and he goes, yeah, I know. He's like super serious about this, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Love it. His coworker knew. This guy loves Jesus, and he's serious about it. He doesn't play around. I love it. My faith should be so contagious that it causes other people to question their own value system. My faith should be so big that it makes a difference wherever God's planted me. Our church should have a, such a radical faith that it makes our city, our community different. Turn your foot over to Acts chapter 17. This is the last passage we'll look at tonight. I didn't say we're almost done. I just said it's the last passage we'll look at. Some of you got hopeful, didn't you? <laughs> oh, man. Acts chapter 17. 
I remember when Angela and I first started going to church, uh, I thought when the pastor said in closing, that minute was about to wrap up. And then I realized those words really don't mean a whole lot to pastors. And so, Acts chapter 17, verse number two. Actually, yeah. Uh, so, so Paul uh, has gone to Thessalonica. He went to the synagogue, verse number one. Acts chapter 17, verse number two. And Paul, as his manner was, went into unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Now pause there for just a second. Paul is going into enemy territory, the Jewish synagogue that does not believe in Jesus, that put Jesus Christ to death, that basically hates Christians. And Paul was one of them once upon a time. Paul has gone into the synagogue for the purpose of preaching Jesus to these people. What does it say in verse number two? Paul, as, what does it say? How does it read? Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. So for three weeks, he went back and basically preached Jesus to them as was his habit, it says. I wish to God that it would be said of me one day that Anthony was talking to this guy about Jesus because that's just what he did. And I want to have that kind of faith that has that kind of works to back it up. But it goes on, verse number three, opening and alleging that Christ must have suffered and risen again from the dead. And that is this Jesus Christ whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and the devout Greeks, a great multitude and the chief women, not a few. But the Jews which believed not moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city in an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So the Jews were mad and they got a bunch of really nasty dudes, people of a baser sort. They got a rough crowd of people to go with them and go to Jason's house because Jason was a Christian. And they basically said, hey, Jason, come out. We got some stuff that we need to say to you. Basically an angry mob here at Jason's house, verse number six. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, one Jesus. Everybody that didn't believe in Jesus was so bent out of shape because these Christians had come into town, began to go into the synagogues, preach Jesus. People were being saved and turned to Jesus, and they were livid about it, and they described it as these men who have turned the world upside down. Would be to God that it could be said about our church one day that we just turned this city upside down for Jesus. Amen, that's good. How are we going to do it? we got to get out there and get after it. Talking about it, laughing about it, amening about it, that doesn't amount to a hill of beans. I'm talking about going out tomorrow morning and really living like a Christian. I'm talking about going to your workplace and letting people know, hey, I love Jesus and I want you to love him too. It's about repenting of sin and making sure that I'm 100% right as rain between me and God. And the revival starts in my house before it goes anywhere else. That's what I'm talking about. A faith that changes people around me. And James basically asked the question, if your faith has, doesn't have a tangible impact, what good is it? Look, if your faith isn't doing anything, what it, what's it worth? I think James probably would have said something along these lines. Hey, if you think showing up to church for an hour and, and fighting to stay awake while you're checking your Instagram notifications on your phone is your faith, you should probably just stay home. Because that's not doing anything for anybody. 
But if you really believe that Jesus is who he says that he is, if you really believe the Bible is true, then your life should be changed in every single area of your life, and it should catch fire to the people around you. That's what he's saying. But if, 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 look, if your faith is just going to church once a week for an hour, if you can find a church that preaches for an hour, uh, just a thought there. Okay, let's say two hours. If that's your idea of Christianity, you, you've missed the point. Missed it. If you think that Christianity is relegated to a Sunday gathering, you missed it. It's an everyday thing. And your life should be living out your faith in a real, tangible way that touches other people's lives. Final thoughts here tonight. Questions with answers. Can you be saved by faith alone without works? Yes. Absolutely, no doubt about it. Did somebody say no back there? Let's try this again. Can you be saved by faith alone without works? Yes, absolutely yes. Brian, I have a book on soteriology I'd like to share with you. I'd just like to share the gospel with you. How about that? Can you be saved by faith alone without works? Absolutely yes, no doubt about it. Can you be saved by works alone without faith? Absolutely not. No two ways about it. Can you mix in your own works with your faith to be saved? No, you can't do that either. Can you do good works apart from authentic faith? Can you be a really good person and not be saved? Sure. People do it all the time. You have a lot of people that are doing good things. We had a chance several years ago to go to Salt Lake City, Utah. It's one of the cleanest cities, I think, in America. Clean. And man, they got laws against everything, whether it's pornography and alcohol and things along those lines. Clean. Clean as a whistle. Good stuff. Are they saved? Not even remotely close. They subscribe to a Mormon doctrine, you're not saved, period, in a story. People do good things apart from faith, no doubt about it. That's why works can't save you. Because if it's just a matter of doing good stuff, even unsaved people who deny Christ could do good stuff and go to heaven. It doesn't work that way. But can you have authentic faith without works? You can't. You just can't. Are you saying that if somebody's saved, there should be evidence of it? 100%. Well, what about somebody who prayed a prayer one time in junior high and has no fruit, has no works, has no desire for the things of God? I honestly could not speak to their salvation testimony because it appears there is no spiritual fruit. Are you saying somebody could just pray a prayer and not be saved? 100%. And again, we'll dig into that a little bit deeper next week. But look, if you, if you have a real, legit, saving faith, it should change stuff. Again, for someone who claims to be a Christian yet continues to live in sin, continues to cuddle up to their sin, continue to be okay with their sin, nothing in their life changes. The Spirit inside of them doesn't do anything. They don't even know what the Holy Spirit is because they've never experienced it in any tangible way. A question whether or not that person is saved. So, going back to what James says, faith without works it's totally dead. But can you be saved without works? That's the only way that you can be saved. 
So it's not faith plus works equals salvation. It's faith equals salvation plus works. Does that make sense? I don't work because I hope that I'll be saved. I want to do good works because I'm saved. I don't do good stuff hoping that I'll earn God's favor. Because I've already received God's favor, I want to do good things to please my Father. Don't mix those two up. Because the moment that anyone adds works to salvation, it ruins the whole thing. So I hope for you there's been a time, a date, a place in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior. If not, tonight's your opportunity. If, if you'd like to talk with somebody, it's not a, a long 45-minute conversation. It could be five to ten minutes where we could go through the Bible and show you how you can know for sure that your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. Stop trying to do enough to get to heaven. You'll never make it. I promise you that. But put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. For those of us that have already been saved and been born again, I want to encourage you this week to think about every single day. How are you living out your faith? If someone were to follow you for the next seven days, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Would it hold up in a court of law? Because faith without works is dead. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.